This week I've been really struck by the songs of the hymns that we've been singing during Advent. Um, Pastor Kevin wrote about them in the Thursday email, slash Friday email, if you receive that. Um, Particularly the line, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. These hymns of Advent call us to pay attention and to keep our eyes, our hearts, our minds open for the coming of Jesus. And these hymns invite us into anticipation and the waiting of Advent. And many of them remind us of the themes of our season that we go through the candles with. Hope, peace, joy, and eventually we'll swing back around to love and then the Christ candle. And I have to be honest, uh, as I sat down to write my sermon this week, I wasn't feeling very joyful. I was feeling anything but peace and anything but hope. As I sat down to write my sermon this week, Instead, I was experiencing the polar opposite. I was experiencing deep and gut-wrenching turmoil. This week, I traveled to Nashville for the wedding of two of my dearest friends. But at the exact same time that I was experiencing this wedding, which, as we all know, is sometimes less than peaceful, um, I had another friend far away who, um, whose life was taking a very different journey at that moment. Um, This life was marked by depression and fear and anguish. And for many reasons, including this wedding that I was at far away, I could not be present to my friend. I couldn't answer late-night phone calls or text messages. Instead, in the morning, I would wait to see if I received another text message to make sure that he was still alive. All the while trying to participate in the joy of my friends getting married who have loved each other so well over the past two years. I wonder if you've ever experienced anguish or have felt the darkness pressing so closely that you think you're going to suffocate. Or if you've ever wanted to cry out but felt like you are being silenced. Welcome to the third Sunday of Advent. Joy. This is the day when we begin to ask ourselves, what does the coming of Christ have to say to this darkness? What does joy got to do, got to do, got to do with us? So let us turn our ears and our hearts to the scriptures and see what the Lord may have us hear today about joy. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 6 through 8 and then 19 through 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is the word of the Lord. Now, at first glance, this passage really has nothing to do with joy, does it? It's about John, a different J word, if we're talking about the ABCs. Um, But as we sometimes feel, I'm sure some of you have felt this, that joy is far from you. Perhaps you felt like I have this past weekend, torn between simple bliss on one hand and the oppressing darkness of heartache on the other. And I think sometimes we receive these scriptures and we just pull them away from the people that they're about or the people they were first given to. And we forget that these people were once human beings alive like we are. They too were full of anguish and struggle. They too were ones who struggled to find joy in the midst of their waiting to be saved. That sometimes they weren't always sure what God was doing or if God was doing anything at all. So let me assure you, if you were like me, you are not the first. You certainly won't be the last to struggle to find joy. The heritage of our faith is full of questions, sometimes very angry questions to God, demanding, why aren't you doing anything? Why aren't you saving us? Why are you not here? If you don't believe me, read the Psalms, I promise. Um, But I'm wondering if you have ever wondered this. What exactly happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Have you ever wondered if it just like picks up like the next day, the end of the Old Testament? And then there's Jesus. Um, Have you ever wondered what happened to the people who had been waiting, the people of Israel, before Jesus came, while they were waiting? So if you know your biblical history, which some of you I'm sure do, especially a couple of us, you know we go to the school for this, um, then you know that it goes far back. This calling of God to a people who are waiting extends all the way back to Genesis 1 and the creation, but then shortly after that into Abraham and the calling of Abraham and Sarah and how they are waiting for a child that seems to never be coming. And then they have a child. And then God calls Isaac and Rebekah. And then God calls their sons, well, one of them, Jacob, and then his wives and their children, And each time God calls someone anew, this light breaks into them, breaks into the darkness of their lives. And God calls each generation of this family, even the ones that we don't like to talk about, like Esau. God comes to them and calls them to be a holy people. So then God, several generations later, comes to their descendants who are in Egypt. And God comes to break the bonds of slavery and captivity, and God comes to set them free kind of like our hymn. And then eventually God delivers them back into the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a land flowing with milk and honey by the leadership of Moses and then Joshua. But the people can't really seem to keep it together, right? They're kind of like herding cats. 
They keep just screwing everything up time after time, and they chase other gods, just like our gods. They chase security and money and comfort and sex and fertility and any other possible idol you can imagine. And darkness and light in their lives seem to be constantly at battle. And so God keeps breaking into the darkness and grabbing their attention yet again. And they go through leaders who are really great and really not great. There's this heritage, one of the kings in particular, every time his name is said in a Jewish context, they boo. Like audibly, not just like, oh, boo. But like, it's terrible. They boo and they hiss at his wife's name, Ahab and Jezebel. They don't like them because they, thank you, good job. Oh, yes. Bonus points, brownie points for everyone. There will be cupcakes after service. That's true. Um, But God keeps sending them these leaders, and these leaders are like David. They're very faithful, and then like David, they're very not faithful. And then they're like Ahab and Jezebel, very not faithful. And then they get this constant pendulum swing, and eventually this this progressive series of unfaithfulness leads them into exile. God sends the people of Israel away from the land that he has promised them. Why? Because they habitually practiced injustice and idolatry. They habitually embraced this injustice because they loved their idols and false gods. And they loved their darkness more than they loved the light. Their darkness became more comfortable as it sometimes does with us, because it hides our flaws. And so God sends them into exile, not as like a timeout, but so that they could see the darkness that they had chosen and see the difference in the light they were being called to. And so they are sent into exile, and they lose, like we talked about last week, or two weeks ago, they've lost the temple for the first time. This is God breaking in in light, though it does not seem like it. God destroys the most powerful idol that the people had, the temple. This place that was meant to constantly remind the people of faithfulness had become a place of money exchange, much like it does in Jesus' time. It became a place where other gods were worshipped, a den of wickedness. It became a place of darkness in the land. And so God breaks in and steals its power and sends the people away from their homes so that they can truly perceive their darkness. But if you read your Bibles, you know that God doesn't leave them in exile. Instead, God again delivers them back to the promised land. And they tell themselves the stories of their captivity and their exile. And this is where we receive some of the really most overused words in Scripture, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. This is spoken over a people in exile, remembering why they have sinned. And so as God sends them back, they tell themselves these these stories of their captivity, of their exile, and of their sin, and God's forgiveness, and God's restoration of them. And so again and again, over the years and days and months and just ages, they tell themselves these stories that God again will deliver them into freedom. God has promised. And this time when God sends a leader, this leader will not falter. This leader will practice faithfulness and justice and will restore all things. And what shall he be called? 
the Redeemer, Messiah, Wonderful Counselor. These are stories being passed like candles into the darkness, reminding each person of the people of Israel that God is indeed coming. And I'm assigning homework this week. Go home and read Isaiah 59 through 61. It'll give you some context on this, I promise. And it tells us that when the Messiah comes, the people will live in the light of the Lord forever. And this light is meant to be like a marriage between God and God's people. And that marriage, that unity, will be a beacon to all other persons on the earth. And it says in Isaiah that they will stream from distant lands to hear of the goodness of this God who has come to God's people. And the people of Israel will be again called the pride and the joy of all peoples because of their union with God. The people of Israel will again be made pastors and priests over all the nations. They will be signposts pointing back to God, calling all to worship and all to faithfulness. They are the bride waiting for their groom. This Messiah is the one who will come and declare the year of the Lord's favor. Who remembers from a couple weeks ago what the year of Jubilee is? Tell me something about it. Stefan. All debts are forgiven. What else? The land is returned to the families that it was given to in the first place. Fun fact. We have no evidence that Israel ever practiced a year of Jubilee. But in Isaiah 61, which we read earlier in service, the coming of the Messiah will mark the beginning of of the forever jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, where, again, all debts are canceled, all slaves are set free, all peoples released to live in joy, and a land that is freely theirs. And if you know the Gospels, this is a scroll that Jesus read from in the Gospel of Luke when he begins his ministry. These, these are the stories that the people of Israel were telling themselves during these hundreds of years waiting for Jesus. And so when God sends them back out of exile to Jerusalem, they come back and they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the city walls, and they tell themselves these stories as hundreds and hundreds of years pass. There are no more prophets. They stop coming to call them to faithfulness. No one comes to call them back to faithfulness. Days and weeks and months and years pass, and it seems that God has become silent in the face of their suffering. And it probably began to feel like God was never coming. And it probably began to feel like darkness again, and it probably began to feel as though the darkness had just won. Then suddenly, light bursts in this darkness. In the nighttime, this light burns, and this strange man named John begins doing things that the prophets did. He stands in a place that is a marker unto itself. He stands in the wilderness. That's the last verse of our passage today, which is the very place where Israel wandered for 40 years. This wilderness was a place of preparation to enter the promised land, but it was also thought of as kind of a place of chaos It's a place they did not wish to return to. 
It's where they are sent when they are unfaithful. And yet John stands in the wilderness wearing the same clothes that Elijah the prophet wore, eating the diet of prophets, wearing camel hair, eating locust and honey. Not really like my jam, but all right. He's eating the very markers of captivity and deliverance. He eats locust, a plague sent upon the Egyptians, and honey, which their land was meant to flow with. And he begins baptizing people in the Jordan, which is the same river that the people of Israel passed through on their way into the promised land. Not the Red Sea, that was the first time. This is the second river they passed through, okay? They pass through the Jordan, and the rivers part. And they stand up stones from that river to mark what God has done. And here, John stands looking and talking and acting like a prophet again. Maybe he's the Messiah. He's walking, talking, acting, being. He is a prophet. Perhaps God's silence has ended. So, of course, the Jewish leaders send an envoy to find out. Is John the Messiah? And he doesn't fail to confess that he isn't. The Gospel of John tells us that he freely tells them, I am not. Their hearts had to fail within them. They had thought the light had broken upon them, but it was just another candle. And so they begin this rapid-fire series of questions. Well, if you're not the Messiah, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you Moses? Who are you? Answer us. And John responds by quoting their very scriptures. He responds that he is a signpost. He is the one calling for Israel to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John responds, I baptize with water, but in your very midst stands one you do not know. This is the one. John stands in the wilderness, this place that was a constant reminder of the people's unfaithfulness. It is a place of preparation, and he declares to them that light has broken into their darkness, that God has come again to deliver God's people. Good news of great joy. But brothers and sisters, there is tension in our joy. I have caught myself feeling as though I have failed because I do not freely experience joy sometimes. Like we spoke of earlier when we lit the candles, sometimes we mistake our happiness for joy. Sometimes I even catch myself thinking that I can just force myself into joyfulness. That if I just focus on the positives and ignore the negative feelings, we'll have joy. That if I just have enough will or enough faith, then perhaps I can propel myself into joy and that joy will burst forth from me. But that isn't true. Our joy does not come from rejecting what we perceive to be darkness around us. Our joy does not come from rejecting the world that suffers. Joy does not break from us. It bursts into us. It steals into the darkest corners of our hearts Joy is not warm fuzzies. No, I promise. I have the microphone, so I'm right. Sometimes joy is just the persistent nagging sense that the story isn't done yet. 
It's the sense that God has done something in the past and God is doing something now that our eyes have not yet perceived. Joy is not born out of our own will. We must receive joy from the one who is coming to us. There's a great mystery that the Holy Spirit constantly brings the future of the church to us, the future of the kingdom. And we as the body of Christ are called to be living by leaning into the future that we have already put our faith in. The future where Christ will be all in all and will reign over all. We, like the people of Israel before us, are called to be the bride of Christ, waiting for our groom to return and to come to us. And like the people of Israel, we are waiting. Maybe some of you remember your wedding day, the joy. And hopefully as you entered into that union, you were well aware that sorrow and frustration and sometimes anger and heartbreak would follow your vows. Because hopefully someone told you it wasn't just going to be sunshine and rainbows after you pronounced husband and wife. But we know that that doesn't always happen. That this person that we were meant to stand beside isn't always there. But the joy in that moment is knowing that no matter the circumstance of our lives, this person has vowed to stand beside you through it. And while we know that in our human frailty that we fail, we can believe that the groom that is coming to us will not. Friends, joy is not closing our eyes to the suffering before us or around us or within us. It is found in trusting the God who is coming, who is also here now. That joy is found as we await the one who is promised and the one who is steadfast. This God who has made this promise is trustworthy, despite the silence that we fear. This God is present with us in our sufferings, and this same God is the God of all joy. This is the God who brings about weddings in the midst of turmoil. Who brings about sunrise in the midst of darkness. Who brings about life and resurrection in the midst of death and decay. This is the God who brings peace in conflict. The God who brings hope in desolation. Our hope and our joy is rooted in God's future for us that much like our joy is bursting into the present like a dawn breaking over the night. And so John confesses, much like we confess, this Jesus whom we are waiting for is the one that the gospel writer of John says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Nothing without him was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not and will not overcome it. Brothers and sisters, the light of all lights is coming. And is coming to us. This is the good news of great joy, that our Lord, the light of the world, is coming to us.